Hi, this is Tony D, and you are tuned in to Talking Blues. So tell me about last night's gig. Last night we played, uh, Monkey Junk played at um, Hughes Room, and we had uh, a sellout show, which has been uh, good for us because Toronto had been touch and go in the last couple of years for Monkey Junk. Uh, so when that happened, when it's touch and go, and I know Toronto's got, like, it's just a weird city in terms of supporting live music or blues. Um, are you hesitant to come into Toronto? Like how? There's some, some reasons we are hesitant to come into Toronto. Uh, it was hard to find um, a venue that um, would facilitate as well, you know, uh, um, having its own um, kind of crowd that would go to it because right. you know there's still some clubs or some venues that have a reputation of always bringing in good music and therefore people will always check in to see right. who's playing you know and uh, they become uh, loyal patrons but Toronto for us had uh, kind of that had dissipated well I think it started before us there was um yeah, I don't think it's you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that, you know, there isn't, from the, my perspective, there isn't as many venues as when I started playing here. Now, I could be reminiscing right. <laughs> about when I was younger and played here in the 80s, and, you know, we pretty well would play anywhere anybody asked us to. Uh, but I tend to think that there was more for people in blues or roots acts to to go and and play on a weekly basis yeah. you know i've uh, gone to those sort of um albert's holidays or you know just uh, even the smaller venues like chicago's and and the black swan and um clinton's i just remember all these places that i used to play in toronto you know uh, grossman's tavern is still there yeah. which is it's kind of it's heartwarming that you know you're going down Spadina, and there it is, and there's some band up on stage, and it's still pretty well the same as it always has. And making the same money they used to in the 70s. That's it, right. <laughs> well, was it, was, didn't they just, they celebrated, right? A, a, yeah, like 70 well, years or something like that. Something ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, and so, and, and it was just, you know, so now what I find is that when we were coming in with Monkey Junk, we were coming into Toronto in the last couple of years, we tried these different places. But the type of people who come out to see live music, who want to hear and see live music, are, are you know, basically a, a middle-aged to an older generation because that's, we grew up, uh, this is what we did. We grew up going out to see live music. Now there's a million different options and most of them are, the options are on somebody's cell phone. <laughs> it's not even, you know. And, and so when, when, when a younger um, crowd goes out to see, you know, when they're going out, to, to for entertainment that's what it is it's like they just basically show up late and they just want to be entertained immediately now that being said i've started to notice a younger audience in the last year and a half showing up to live music more than um in the last you know five or six years so that's that's a good thing do you have this kind of problem in any other markets or cities across canada not so much um because of a couple of things. I mean, one of one of them, we go to smaller uh, cities that, right. um, so it's, you know, options are this, this, or that, and they're 
if they've cultivated any kind of music scene, like Calgary, for example, and right. Edmonton, those two cities are fantastic for music. I mean, there's so many live venues, surprisingly, for the size of, um, you know, of the cities. And they push it. They have an incredible, um, in Alberta, they have an incredible uh, radio station called CKUA, which I know you're aware yeah. of, right? And I was wondering how much that has impact on That has everything to do because our biggest market is in Alberta. We go and sell out the art and theater, you know, that uh, there's seven or 800 people show up. You know, we, we've, uh, we were on the headliners at the, uh, at the uh, Edmonton Blues Festival this year, you know, which is just you know, 4,000 people. Uh, we hold the record for selling most CDs at the Edmonton Blues Festival, wow. you know. Yeah, we sold 459 CDs after one performance. And I jokingly, I remember I was talking to... I can't believe you had that many CDs with you, but I guess... Was, well, was but, you know, our, our record company is in, we, uh, in Alberta, in right. Edmonton, so we sent Holger Peterson yeah, of, of Saturday Night yeah. Blues and also our boss, basically, of Stony Plain Records, to go out and get more CDs after a show. But, um, you know, things like that. So there's, um, there's so many festivals in Alberta. Sorry, and, when did that happen? The 459 CDs. That was about four years ago, and we just played, but we just headlined it this year, too, as well. So it's been about four years, four or five years. Yeah, it'd be about four four or five years ago, four years ago. And uh, it was funny, because Cam Hayden, who uh, runs the festival in Edmonton, also has a show on CKUA, right? Um, uh, a blues show. And he, I asked him before I was we were going on... Um, you know, what's the record anybody's ever sold uh, after a performance? And he said, uh, some woman, I, I can't remember her name, was from Detroit. She sold 300 and some odd wow. CDs after performance. And that's usually a lot for uh, any artist. I went jokingly. I said, well, we're going to beat that. <laughs> we sold 459. And he even looks at me, he goes, in fact, that was like four years ago. And, and then this summer when we played there, he goes, so you're going to beat 459? I said, well... I don't know if that if we do that, that would be quite surprising. We didn't, but we still sold a lot. And well, that's so, encouraging because I know the CD sales are just plummeting. So it's yes. nice to see. But I do believe that if if you do a good show, and people really are into that moment, that there's still a market there. People say CD sales are plummeting on a retail level, like on a store level, and that's true. But you right? don't see it when you do live shows. When we do live shows, again. The audience that comes and sees us, which is an, um, a middle-aged to older audience now, um, they buy CDs because I, I this is also, this is our this is our culture. We went out and bought yeah. music, and we're still willing to pay for it. So there's a lot of that out there. But yeah. I think it also speaks to how good your band is because I'm band hearing other good. people saying that it's just not the same as it used to be. And Yes. You know, to, and, and drastically different. So that's... It, it isn't the same in some ways. And it, it... You have a lot more out there now available to you to promote your band, for example. Of course, all the social mm -hmm. media, which you should stay on top of. And it's not that hard. A lot of people say, oh, I couldn't be bothered. It's really not that hard to post where you're playing on Instagram or on Facebook. Yeah. Really, it just isn't. And if people like you, they will follow you, Right. And um, and I think that that's important. So the fact that we can expose ourselves a lot more is a great thing. Um, you know, doing this podcast, there's lots of podcasts out there now, but it's great. You know, you're able to tune in. You have your fans that want to hear your interviews, you know, and so right. forth. And they're like, oh, well, Tony's on there. You know, we have our fans. And so people want to hear that. And so I think that's wonderful. I think some of the venues... 
um, are are strained and they're competing with not just other venues, but with just anything else that's available. So how do we get these younger folks out there to, so that these venues um, really start to happen? And it's harder out there in that aspect because there's a lot of competition in, in everything for I hate calling it entertainment. To me, it's culture, you know, it's right. art. It could be weather too, right? Yeah. Like it could be so many different variables. Yeah, but here's the thing. And what I wanted to sort of finish this off with was that the fact that if you do get exposure, such as from Radio Play, such as CKUA does, they're amazing. The amount of people that comes through Alberta and all these small theaters all across Alberta, two, three, four, five hundred seaters that are, have concert series all the time there's and they're everywhere and um you know we play bow island alberta where's bow island it's not even an island <laughs> right it's between lethbridge and somewhere else right. you know and uh, and so we play places like that and you know 400 people will show up from just the surrounding communities to come and see that show so and a lot of it has to do with getting the airplay and getting the exposure still on traditional type of media such as radio right you know and that's important. And I, I wish more radio became more community, where the DJs, the people who work there, program their own music. Mm -hmm. That's the really important part. You yeah. Know? yeah. But but there's like very few radio stations like CKUA. Yeah, the, <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, everybody has sort of a community radio station. You right. Know? But not at the level of CKUA, I don't think so. No. You know, uh, Toronto still has a few that reach out to quite a bit, but... CKUA, whoever's on at the time, the whole province hears that one show. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of time is being dedicated to specific shows. And, uh, you know, there, there's Monica Miller, uh, one of my favorite shows she has on CKUA's mixtape, where she would invite any artist uh, of any kind, of any genre. It didn't, it didn't have to be just musically, but they would have to come up with 10 songs, right. their mixtape, and they would go on and they would talk about why these songs were important to them. It, you know, one had to be a personal song, one had to be a dedication. You have to tell them why, you know. Right. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be your favorite songs. It could be any songs that, that mean something to you. Do you think it's easy to pick 10 songs? <laughs> I I went on, that was my favorite show and I really wanted to be on it. And um, my partner and my girlfriend, she said, oh, you can easily get on that. I'm like, oh, I don't know. And she just said, hey, you know, Tony, she said, absolutely, we'll get them on. And um, it took me like, I was like sort of stressed like for a week trying to figure, well, no, I should really play that song. No, I should. Or was it, was it the, the fact that you had only 10 songs? Only or, 10 songs. Is that, is it, was that the, the bigger problem or was yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, think about it, Michael. If you had to pick 10 songs right now. Well, it would change on a weekly basis, yeah. I would think. But yeah, okay, I, so I'll tell change, me. I change on an hourly basis, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, you think about that. And, uh, but that's, again, see, it's shows like that that make it make radio very interesting you know right. and I would just I just tune into her show all the time now it doesn't matter who's on I mean she had like film directors I remember Raul Benesia right. was doing a um, some sort of theater uh, I think he was taking his um, his show the, 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 um, oh, the blue show the blue show yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, theater show anyways he was taking it to um, he was going across Canada and he was doing some shows in Edmonton and I was talking to Raul. I said, you know, you should get a hold of Monica Miller and go on and do your 10 songs. And he thought that's a great idea. He knew about 
about that show. And I contacted Monica and she said, absolutely. Like he's a perfect guy. Not only can we talk about music, we talk about acting with right. him. And I got Paul Reddick on that show because he was going through town. And Paul was one of the most interesting shows because I've known Paul for a very, very long time. I collaborate with Paul. We write songs together. We've toured together. And then when he went out and put his mixtape, I just like, well, there's some interesting mm-hmm. stuff that I never knew about Paul, you know, certain different kinds of music right. that meant, uh, you know, just because sometimes you think, oh, so-and-so is just going to be this way. But you'd be surprised. Okay, so people... how many songs did you pick because you were concerned about what people might think of you? Um, <laughs> like, was there external forces than just you thinking these? No, I had to throw that one. But that's a great question because um, you do think about that. But then I thought, no. I'm going to throw that out the window. I mean, I was, I played anywhere from, um, you know, uh, the obvious, Muddy Waters, which right. changed the way I, you know, I play. And, and, and like, I mean, really, I learned to play guitar by listening to Muddy Waters all the time. Uh, obvious, uh, I had to pick one Hendrix number because, you know. What Hendrix, did you pick? Well, I like a particular record that's called Hendrix Live in the West, which my see to me it's sentimental, right? right? Because and, and and that version of Little Wing on that is yeah. just fantastic. It's uh, in fact I was talking about that very same version with Colin Linden. We both talked about that one song on that particular record and how fantastic it's the best version I've ever heard. And um, so. But you know Hendrix, uh, that album is sentimental because my brother, my older brother, brought it home. And I remember him playing it, and I remember him uh, be sitting there and just being mesmerized by what I was listening to. And I remember being able to do my math homework to it. <laughs> I can picture myself in the in that living room, you know, while the thing was on. And um, so that, you know, but then I picked, uh, on that mixtape show I did with Monica, I picked Paco Pena. I mean, I love Paco Pena's flamenco playing, you right. know. I'm, I, Paco Pena plays a lot of what's called flamenco puro, which is like, you know, um, traditional, pure flamenco. And if you ever listen to Paco Pena play, you know, it's one man. I mean, it sounds like an orchestra. Right. It's just beautiful. And his composition and his execution of, of, of traditional um, flamenco forms, you know, um, there's a beautiful thing called a rondeña that he's done. And it's just, it's just outstanding to listen to, you know. And I... Yeah, I did that, and you know, I picked that one, and and people were surprised. My favorite all-time record is like uh, Midnight Blue by Kenny Burrell. I just think that's one of the best records I've ever heard. Did you pick anything recent? More recent? Than- yeah, I picked um, <clears throat> I picked a, a, a song from what I think was one of the better albums in the last two years. Was Jeff Beck put out an album called Loud Hailer, which has a singer named Rosie Bones on it right. from a band called Bones out of uh, out of England. And the album's very political, and uh, but it's also reminiscent. Uh, like he nods, you know, he gives a nod to a few times to Hendrix, even to the point where, <laughs> like, he's just quoting Hendrix lines in some songs. And there's there's songs where you hear him clicking on the wah wah pedal like you would on a Hendrix the live <laughs> recording, because of course the recordings were yeah, yeah. in the sixties. You could hear the noise, you know. He keeps the noise. But Loud Hailer is a fantastic record. It was put out in 2016. And uh, there's a song called uh, Live in the Dark. And I love that song. I like that whole record, by the way. And if you haven't heard it, do yourself a favor. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's um, it's really well done. And if anybody uh, doesn't 
think that a 74-year-old guy can rock out and blow your mind on a guitar? Listen to this. <laughs> he's well, I think he's tremendous. He's, he's, he's completely different from anybody else. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, uh, Jeff Beck is one of those standalone, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I love but, him. But I think in some ways the blues and, and some of the people that you were influenced by and some people you played with kind of proved many years ago that you could be old and still rock out. Oh yeah, yeah. So. Well, you see, you see it all the time. I mean, we 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 do a lot of festivals, for example. We see all these guys who you know are heroes, and we go and we're listening to them, and they're like they're still doing it, like and, and they're still and they're doing it well, if not better. Yeah. Sometimes they're they're dedicated to their particular art or their instrument. You know, I've seen. Um, <clears throat> Booker T twice in the last couple of years. We were at two festivals with him. Now, Booker T has become a bit of a review. Right. But when he wants to, and he opens up, and there he goes, you know, and it's fantastic. And he's kept the vibe of that whole stacks thing. Mm-hmm. He, luckily, he doesn't sit there and, and reminisce too much over the microphone because when it becomes a review, I just, you know, right, right. yeah. You know, in 1967, I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so, but he's, then he, with him and his band, they open up and they'll, you know, Green Onions isn't just like this little short song. It's like they open up in the middle of it, you know. And you think, he still plays fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. And it was great to see him do that. It was it was fantastic because I love all that Stax uh, recording, especially uh, Booker T and the MGs. I like them a lot. I, I'm a big fan of instrumental music, so. It's, it's weird when... In the last few years, I saw The Who and Doobie Brothers, and mm-hmm. and both bands blew me away and mm-hmm. made me think that I can't believe that they could rock that much at this age. Yeah. And in the case of Doobie Brothers, I mean, I saw them the first time in the 70s, and they were good, but they weren't as good as when I saw them no, two years they're ago. they're still playing well yeah, and, like, and better. If, and harmonies, times. and you think, my God, like... yeah. You well, know, Jeff Beck, when I saw him, was the same thing. Like, he just keeps getting better and better and better, yeah. right? Um, I saw Robert Plant. And I think Robert Plant is better now than he has been in a long, long time, you know? Uh, because he's more focused. You know, he's not going on stage where he's half, you know, one way, half the other way. You know, ooh. <laughs> and you can hear that in the early days of, you know, Zeppelin Live. But uh, How does that inspire you? Uh, as far as uh, seeing a musician and seeing a musician of an older age still well I'll tell you right now as I'm getting older everybody contemplates themselves getting older things happen yeah you know physically we change Uh, physically uh, we might have to deal with certain physical problems which uh, all of us do are and then there's the idea of relevancy right there's the idea that do I still matter right musically and then when you go see these people who inspired you as a kid, I get back. I'm I'm 13 years old, 12 years old again when I go see these people, and I realize that yeah, I, I can keep doing this until I until I fall over. You know, they're they're still inspiring me musically, and so what happens is when that spark happens again, when that when you get inspired musically, it doesn't really matter whether you think you're relevant or not. You are because right. that spark just ignited again. Like it does on a daily basis, but again, and so that means, and you start becoming creative and you want to play and you want to get out there and perform and you want to write songs and you want to play really well on your instrument or, or, or just, you want to seek out other music. All that is, is very important to an art, to, to, for me. Did you ever go through a period where that was lost? 
I think I went through a period of um, I got tired of what I sounded like. And uh, at what point in your career was this? This is probably a couple of years before Monkey Junk. Uh, so okay. a couple of years before that, I was just doing the same old moves, you know. And yeah, I've been known to play a lot of guitar, and and, and some of my solos were very long and stuff like that. And I really got tired of it. And then I realized it wasn't really about the length of solos, or uh, it's got it was you know I needed to expand more uh, for myself. You know, musically. And I could hear other things happening, but I wasn't able to reach them. But one of the things that, that turned me around, uh, which would have been way before this, and I'm really happy that I did that because I started to get into different uh, music. And one of them was listening to flamenco, for example. I started taking some flamenco lessons at the time. <laughs> you know, here I am, I've got all these records, and I go out and I, you know, tour, and people come and pay money to see me play. And then I go to my first flamenco lesson, and I felt like I couldn't play you know it's like the first yeah, day yeah. i tried to play something because this guy's like okay here's you know your right hand technique and it took him like a minute to show me how to do it and he says come and see me next week that's it you have to learn how to do that for and i couldn't even move that right hand you know but it got me to listen to different stuff and so different perspective it wasn't just the same old um i ended up recording with this gentleman uh, and writing a lot of material for him that came out on the Northern Blues label. It was James Cohen Caravan. Oh, okay. It's a flamenco record. Uh, Neo-flamenco. It's like, um, and I wrote a lot of songs on it. And because uh, uh, it's funny how all of a sudden, you know, my European roots started showing, you know, this kind of, some of the, um, some of the gypsy music that we were listening to as well was in, it was in there and very, you know, sort of that sort of Latin-y, um, very, let's sort of, Spanish grooves and, 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 well, which Europe is known for, you know, just not just in Spain, but, and um, so I was able to really bring in that kind of melodic um, ideas to when I recorded with James Cohen for the flamenco uh, record that he did. However, it's because I started taking those lessons that it started to change the way I think. So now that changed how I play. And I realized that some things were attainable where I thought like I could never play like that, but yes, I can. You know, right. because I took the chance and went in and started studying something different. So it's how, really good to get out of your comfort, you know. You yeah, yeah. Um, how, how good of a flamenco guitar player are you? Now not very good because it's not something you can dab in. Right. You know, either you're in or you're out. And it's like if you want to be a jazz player, you got to play jazz. Yeah. You know, if you want to play gypsy jazz like Django Reinhardt, you know, I can play some Django Reinhardt. I've decided to learn some Django Reinhardt. But really what I'm doing is just recalling what I learned because I can't just, like I can with blues, I can just play it all right. you know, day long, and rock and roll all day long. But And even some jazz now because I did get into, like I said, one of my favorite records is is the Kenny Burrell's Midnight Blue, which is a blues album right. played by a great jazz player. But he said something interesting. I, I watched a great uh, interview with him. He's about 86, 87. And he was saying, you know, he started, he was conflicted when he was young. He wanted, he loved blues. He loved, like he says, yeah, one of his biggest influences was John Lee Hooker. And you're thinking, really? I can't even hear John Lee Hooker, but that's great. You know, and he talks about B.B. King and he talks about people like uh, Ray Charles and, and all that R&B stuff. And you can really hear it in, in his early recordings and stuff like that. But when he said, you know, but I really wanted to play jazz, is I had to kind of drop it all and just focus on the jazz. Um sort of aspect of his life and 
But he's something that I was able to understand and it was attainable for me. I could listen to it and I could listen to it with my ear and pick it out, which expanded my, mm-hmm. my personal style now. Um, so, you know, when you... When you ask a question like "How's my flamenco playing?" Well, it's just I have I, you know I haven't played it in so long. But we there should was do some pretty traditional you, stuff, you know. But there was a time when you followed that for a while and got competent. Yeah, because because again, I, I got tired of the whole Tony D thing uh, for a while. The Tony D band in, in in the way I used to be, which was just this sort of same kind of heavier kind of uh, blues rock kind of thing. And um, but how I mean, I didn't get tired of it. I, I shouldn't. I I have to say, I still did, and I still enjoyed myself, but. I was obviously seeking for some. Uh, well, how scary is that to be doing this? And you, you at that point, by that point, you had been doing it for many, many years. Mm-hmm. You had a following. You, you, you had fans mm-hmm. in various places. Mm-hmm. You toured in Europe and many right, times across yeah. Canada. Yeah. But how scary is that? That at what point you look down and you think, well, this is just not making me as happy as it used to. Well, what happens is that at the time when you go through it, especially when you go through it the first time, when you start to realize eh, something's, you know, something is not... It's gradual though, right? Yeah. Yeah, slowly. I mean, I'm sure you've gone through artistic <sighs> periods where you're like, uh, yeah, you yeah. know. But when it first first happens, it starts, you know, it plants a lot of doubts and, and it starts to think like, uh, who am I kidding here, you know? like Or... or uh, you know, there's this, <laughs> it's like, there's this two things in life, you know, like you, you, you sit in there and you, and you chase this sort of creative um, vision and, and audio vision, as I like to call it, for me that you have in mm-hmm. this, this, this idea and it's art, you know, and you chase it. And then there's this impending doom that we're, uh, maybe, maybe I'm full of it. <laughs> You know, and so it's these two tensions, you know, that are really good that keeps me kind of going sometimes. Yeah, because I wonder if yeah. you have to have that negativity in some ways, that if you didn't have that, mm-hmm. that it would be a different thing. But what I found out was when you have this uh, moment, um, people think about, oh, you know, why am I being negative or, or maybe, you know, really if I lost interest. I think those are the moments of clarity. I think those are the moments now. Because now it's, you know, I've come sort of through this and I thought, well, yeah. It's because of that that made me seek out other right, forms. Right. Uh, and there was so much more out there. And it wasn't just about me anymore, you know. That's the, that's one of the things you get older. It's like, you know what? <laughs> it really, nobody, yeah, it's not really about me all the time, is it? <laughs> you know, when you're young, you're like, hey, over here. And now it's like, Hey, you know this this thing called music. It's uh, it's way bigger than you will ever be in it, but it's asking you to be part of it, right. and that's um, a wonderful thing. I do believe that art finds anybody to that they find their administrators. Like, they, hey, we need you to do this. We need you to do that. And I think those callings are very real. Um, okay, so t- tell me about the calling. Tell me how that started for you. Okay, well, I remember. Um, really early on that uh, my parents used to tell me this too after I started playing guitar that they said if there was an instrument if we went somewhere and there was any kind of instrument you would go directly to the instrument and start banging away on it so people would have pianos in homes so of course I didn't know what I was doing on the piano but 
you know, my parents used to say, we'd have to like kind of pull you off a little bit because you're making all this noise. But just luckily, most people said, no, let them play, you know, because somebody obviously in the house would yeah. play the piano and it showed me something. And what they said, what I always did was I'd find a melody. I would go and find a melody, whether it was on a piano or on a guitar, uh, simple little melodies that everybody knew and that I heard. And he said, you always did that. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's cool. And I do remember times where I remember where my my uh, aunt had a guitar and all I could do was play the open strings and uh, because I didn't know how to do anything with my left hand. and uh, so, But I would find rhythms and uh, my mother brought it up to me. She would bring this up quite a bit. She goes, I remember that evening where you just were completely in a corner for hours with this thing. And I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I didn't ask for a guitar either. I just hung out with it so there was always that now and oh the other thing was that I remember my aunt who's 16 years older than me had um, a record player and a whole bunch of 45s right and uh, she'd go she'd say oh Tony go and pick that song up now I would remember which song she was talking about because of the color of the label right but I she said you were amazing knowing whether it was side A or side B you know I couldn't even read back then, so I was just, you know, I was putting these songs on. And I remember one of the songs that she had was the flip side of She Loves You, Yeah, by the Beatles, which the song was she has, she's got the devil in her heart. Mm-hmm. She's got the devil in her heart, whoa, whoa, yeah, you know. And I used to love that song, you know. And I still listen, I put it up once in a while, you know. And uh, so I remember playing uh, the stereo, you know, any, any kind of record player. And the radio was on all the time. And my parents were wonderful with music, my, especially my father. He had music on all the time. So those are the early days. And then I ended up uh, taking a music uh, class in grade seven at school. And the teacher said, oh, you're going to play trombone. And I'm like, I want to play the drums. And they're like, no, you're going to play trombone. Because he couldn't get any horn players and, <laughs> you know, to play the trombone. Nobody thought, you know, I was like 12 or 13, you know, and... Uh, and I remember coming home and and I had this trombone and uh, I had to go to, I was pretty good at it. And so the teacher said, hey, you know, you should take lessons from this guy at the University of Ottawa. So my father got up, at, you know, we got up at like an ungodly hour and seven o'clock we're in the morning and I'm playing the trombone. And the guy said, oh, you're really good. You read well and which was the last time I probably read any piece of music. <laughs> and I was about 12 or 13, and I think. Did you like it? Did I like the trombone? Yeah. Yes. What I was doing with the trombone was the same thing I was doing with pianos or any other instrument. I would find melodies. I didn't know what I was doing, but I could find the melody. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I remember I, I would find these beautiful old Italian melody, you know, uh, any kind of melody, and, and, and play it for my dad and on this blaring loud instrument the trombone is annoying right <laughs> and uh, I used to love scaring my mom with it you know and that kind of thing but uh, and I came and I was miserable after that lesson and I remembered uh, I, I liked the music but I just didn't like this instrument that much you know and my father said you know he was annoyed because it was really early you know we had to get up early and he's like we're paying for these things you know and he said um What's the matter? You know, I said, I don't, I don't want to play this instrument. And he gets, well, what do you want to play then? I said, I want to play guitar. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm 12, 13. 
girls are not going to notice me if I'm playing a trombone. <laughs> They're going to notice me if I'm playing a guitar. You know, so there's all that whole sort of like that part of music as yes. well, right? And uh, so my father, like a couple of days later, I came home from school and there was an acoustic guitar sitting in the uh, in the kitchen. He said, there you go. And then he's, and you know, being trying to be tough daddy, he's going, first and last one I ever buy you. And I'm like, no, he bought me many more. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really the beginning of stuff. And I, uh, there was a guy across, uh, well, just a couple of blocks down actually, from where I was living that would teach guitar. He had a little studio and I was there every week. And then he left after about six months and I was like devastated, but I was playing pretty fast and he was pretty happy how fast I was playing. So and what my, were you playing? What kind of stuff? Um, we learned, uh, you know, your basic stuff. Then we had to learn songs like, you know, House of the Rising Sun and, um, you know, uh, some Dylan stuff and uh, just this traditional stuff. And then, but he knew that, like, the guy, you know, put out these, like, music books, you know, with, like, on top of Old Smokey. And, and, and it's like, nah, nah, I wasn't into it. And he was younger, you know, uh, a young guy anyway. And he wasn't young to me, but he was, he was, he was a young guy. And he, he thought, ah, this kid doesn't even want to play this. And I was like, I loved Led Zeppelin, you know. I loved the Rolling Stones. I loved Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. So he just got me right into it, started going, oh, this is how so-and-so plays. Or this is how you play this Rolling Stones song. So song? I just got into the rhythm, and then, and then you know, then the day that showed me this is the blues scale, and that was it. I'm still trying to learn how to play <laughs> that. That blues scale changed everything, because then said so this is how you improvise, and I didn't know what improvisation was. I did, but I didn't know. Yeah. You know, when somebody says, "Oh, you improvise," I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Because I would make stuff up anyways. But now. You could see where it would fit. Major scales and blue scales, a minor blue scale. That changed everything. How old were you at that point? Uh, at that point, I would have been 13, 14 years old, yeah. And at that point, had you listened to any blues? Yes, but I didn't really know it was blues. Right. Uh, I just thought it was great, you know. Uh, it affected me uh, quite a bit because, you know, you could hear Led Zeppelin doing blues and you could hear the, the British bands doing blues. Uh, I remember my brother bringing home uh, a Downchild Blues Band record called Straight Up, which was a fantastic record. Mm -hmm. It's got it's got songs like uh, you know Shotgun Blues and Almost, which was a big right. hit, you know, uh, with um, Donnie obviously and his brother Hawk Walsh was a singer. The most one of the most unique voices, you know. I used to love that uh, album. I just did a uh, we just did a show with uh, Downchild just this summer. And I still talk to Donnie about that record, you know, how it was so important to me right. listening, especially when I got into blues, really heavily into blues at one point where I would go and revisit some of these, um, these albums that I didn't, it didn't click at the time. But what really changed everything was um, listening to all these British guys. And then I heard my friend had live at the Fillmore East by the Almond Brothers and there was... Um, uh, at that point, I'm 15 or 16, and there was, um, you know, Statesboro Blues, that opening. And for some reason, even though I'd been listening to blues from other people, that particular song got to me one day. And I said, there's way more to this than just it being whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading about everybody, and they started talking about people like Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson and Howling Wolf and Elmer James, you know, Little Walter all the Chicago blues guys, and, and some of the Delta guys, Sun House, you know. So wherever I could go, 
I'd find these records. It was easy to get to buy Muddy Waters or BB King records. Right. It wasn't easy to get a lot of other stuff. And the Robert John, I remember you could get Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues Singers, yeah. on vinyl. So if there was any other kind of blues record at a store, you would grab it. You didn't care what it sounded like. You would have to go and get it. So I just dived into that. I mean, I got obsessed with it. And I was, and I was not listening to anything else. At that point, I became kind of a snob. <laughs> Everybody will tell you the same story. All yeah, blues yeah. guys will tell you, like, you could come obsessed with this music. And because you realize that you can get into those three chords and weave in and out like a beautiful ribbon, you know, like, and just in and out. And, and, and you've got this blues scale and you know how to now. You're like, I'm able to grab that style. You know, you listen to, like, <clears throat> albums like Live at the Regal. B.B. Mm -hmm. King, which I know everybody talks about. But really, that album, you know, in one 12 bar, B.B. will show you how to play guitar. That's it. You'd learn how to do that, you know, 12 <laughs> bars in the intro of, like, you know, Sweet Little Angel. Hey, he teaches you how to play guitar completely in one, in one go. And that's why that album was fantastic. And I remember listening to that. You could get B.B. King. Mm -hmm. um, but then, not like now you can get anything, right? But before, I, I remember I used to get calls from 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 um, record stores, as I call them, you know, and they would uh, <laughs> retail, yeah. you know, uh, and they say, "Hey, Tony, there's a Notice Rush record." I go, "Please hold it for me. I'll come and get it right now." And I used to beg my dad, "Can I get? Uh, you know, is it four dollars for the record?" But he's like, "I already gave you money for the record, you know." I was like, "Yeah, but I gotta get this record." And he would. At what know. point did you, did that young kid who fell in love with the blues? see the potential of becoming a blues musician? My brother had a friend he went to school with, and their family owned a restaurant that my brother's friend, Moses, decided that the upstairs part would be a really cool uh, bar where you could get live music. And... He was a big fan of all the stuff that he would have been listening to at the time. You know, Moses was pretty young, too. He was like 20, 21 when he had this vision, you know. And so his, because it was a family business, this restaurant, so he had this other thing upstairs. And he would say, hey, I hear you play music. You should come and check out some of these bands. Now, I wasn't even old enough to get in there. But he said, yeah, just come in and just sit here, you know. He'd still give me a beer. <laughs> you know? And back then, you know, and I was just obsessed in watching anybody play. Then there was like little festivals that were free. And I knew about every festival. And I'd go see a band play. So I started bands in school, for example, you know. So we'd have these, we do, uh, I meet other musicians, and, and and how you would learn back then was also somebody would do something you couldn't do and you'd go, hey, show me that. And vice versa, you'd mm -hmm. show people. So you, we, were, we were constantly helping and teaching each other all the time. So then, uh, you know, we did that. And I, I played in school bands, of course, and um, not the high school band, like the, right. the, the, the official band, just a bunch of people, you know, acoustic guitars or electric guitars. And so funny, but I was obsessed with blues and... It was hard to uh, find anybody else as part of, of a blues scene, you know. There was older guys. Right. <clears throat> so I failed math one year. <laughs> so uh, 
Which is funny because I became really good at it. I would fail math all the time, but I became pretty good at it after a while. But um, were you listening to Little Wing and doing math? Yeah, but that was what was great when I was listening to records. I could do math. It's the abstract thing. It's really strange how it would just click. Something would click. You know, and there's also a mathematical component. To That's music, right, right. So. But it's just it's just thinking. It's just the abstract, right? Yeah. Art is abstract. Math is abstract. It's just any kind of thinking where you have to, you know, think about a couple of things, but. <clears throat> And uh, so um, this guy came up to me and says, hey, I hear you play guitar. You know, you, you, play, uh, you play blues. And I said, yeah. And, of course, I was a snob because I didn't think anybody else, you know, I found this thing, you know, like, oh, I'm the only guy in the world that found this diamond, you know, out there. And uh, so he says, yeah, well, I got a blues band. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, seriously, you should check it out. And so I came and I went to see them. And they were fantastic. A bunch of guys my age. Um, they were just local guys. And uh, they had this singer that was, they were like, eh, 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 with the singer. You could just tell something. <laughs> so they said, so uh, the other guitar player said, I hear you play. I said, yeah. And he had another guitar. I said, well, you want to plug in? I'm like, yeah. So I started jamming with them, and they loved me. And they said, why don't you join the band? I went, absolutely. Right. And we were called High Society. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyways, they got rid of the singer, and I knew they would. And, they, and I was joking around on a microphone and I started singing one time. And they said, oh, you're the new singer. I said, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, you're the new singer. Now, my voice has always been okay. It's never been the greatest, but I got, that's how I got into the singing role. Wow. And I've, I have a hard time listening to my voice sing sometimes. I really do. Still? But in some aspects, not everything. Some things it's matured well and it sounds good. I know what it's good for. Right. I also don't kid myself. You know, there are singers out there like Steve Mariner from Monkey Junk. That boy can sing really well, you know. And uh, I've worked with a lot of great singers in the, in, uh, in the past. So, you know, and going to a lot of festivals, you hear some yeah. pretty fantastic singers. But, you know, just what you hear in records. But, I, you know, I still, uh, and so when I still do the Tony D thing, you know, I'm obviously the lead singer again. Uh, and some people like my singing a lot. And some people hear it the same way I hear it. It's like, yeah, it's okay, you know. <laughs> and I'm honest about it, you know. I'm really honest about it. When I'm singing any lead stuff, I like people behind me to support, not just in harmony, but almost even in a unison sometimes as a support because, you know, Robert Plant does that. Mm-hmm. And I realize why he does that because, you know, he's gotten all of his voice, obviously. He's not hitting those notes like in Led Zeppelin three, Led Zeppelin one, when he could hit like those, right. you know. So he's always got a female vocalist behind him as support, and she's singing in unison sometimes, not in necessarily in harmony, which I love. Uh, well, he did when I saw him, anyways. But um, so he does stuff like that. But so my singing, you know, I got in the singing role because we they knew they weren't getting along with that singer in that band I joined, and I knew that he was. It was a matter of time. I couldn't come in there and say, yeah, this kind, this guy is like. Not that he was a bad singer. He just, personality-wise, I knew it wasn't ha- happening. So, anyways, that's how I ended up singing. And uh, then that band broke up, which is too bad, because I really liked that band. But I started to get a name for myself in, in Ottawa. But let me tell you something. Before that, I was in a wedding band, an Italian wedding band. In 1979, I was making 300 bucks a week. Going to school, playing weddings or parties we would play like italian wedding music italian pop music or we would do um just any kind of like 
weddings. It didn't have to be Italian songs. It would just be whatever. And my big solo would be we get to play Johnny Be Good, you know, <laughs> which was great because that was the closest to all this blue stuff. But I was bringing home 300 bucks a week. And for a kid who's 17 years old, 979, 300 bucks a week was a living, a really good living. My father's going, this guitar thing is pretty good. <laughs> you know, Did you think like, at that point you would do this for a living? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had one credit left for my high school diploma, and all I had to do was get up and go and do this exam. But I played a gig the night before, and I slept through the exam. And my father came in and goes, you missed your exam. Came in the room and I went, yeah. He goes, you're going to play guitar, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, be good at it. That's all he said. <laughs> he was very incredibly supportive. Michael. He said, my yeah, father yeah. has a lot to do with the fact that I'm playing music. He was, he just loved that I did it. He tried to be like, oh, you know, because he was a little worried oh, because yeah. there was that whole, uh, you know. Stability. Yeah. Financial stability. Yeah, Exactly. But then he realized, you know, if something makes you happy, whatever it is, I think you really should pursue that more. And uh, he says, and you'll find a way. And we okay. had wonderful talks about it. Yeah. How difficult was that road to making music a career? I got lucky after that. Like, I, I ended up uh, quitting the Italian band because musically it wasn't where I wanted to be, obviously, right. right? I remember I couldn't spend the money. It was just so much money. So I would, you know, I would have, I would take $50 and I could take out my friends, like six of my friends all week and still come home with money, you know, like, and I would, I'd pay for everything, you know, but I would give the rest of the money to my dad. And I just, I don't know what to do with this. And he goes, okay. So he put it all away because he knew that I wasn't going to play this, the wedding stuff anymore. Right. So he says, okay, well, you figure out what you want to do and you can live on this. He had saved it all. You know, that's, the kind of guy he was he knew right. he's like yeah he's not gonna last too long with that but it, there was a lot of money sitting there for me so and I got into that blues band and then I got into um then when that band broke up I got a call from this guy named Larry the Bird Mootham who was a, a guy that um uh, he was a harmonica player and he was a local guy in Ottawa he taught Steve Mariner how to play harmonica <laughs> and Larry was great but Larry was uh you know kind of wild and 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 full of shit most of the time, <laughs> you know. But, Wait, is you know, Larry still around? Uh, no, Larry. Larry's. It's been over ten years. He passed away, and uh, you know, I mean, I say that. I say that with, with love. Yes, absolutely. We call. You know, he said he tell you ten things, and one of them was true. <laughs> if you ever tell him stories, you know, I'd like I'd gone over to Europe, and I told him one time, oh, I went to Europe, and this was like that. A week later, I see him on TV doing an interview, and he's telling about the person about his European tour, which he never went on, but those were my stories. <laughs> like, that's the kind of guy he was, and I couldn't believe it. But anyway, um, so Larry said, hey, this new club opening up called, it was called San Antonio Roses, which was, uh, the Mexicali Roses was a restaurant chain that came out of, uh, ended up being a chain, but uh, out of uh, Ottawa uh, franchise. And then they opened this music club, and, it ended up being called the Downstairs Club. Funky little room, beautiful in Ottawa. And uh, they said, there's going to be a house band. Would you like to play guitar? And I'm like, sure. So I went from 300 bucks a week to $75 a week, right, for three nights. But I was 19 at the time. So, um, no, this would have been like years after the wedding thing. But so 
But they would get Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. We got John Hammond and Buddy Guy came to play the club. And I was his rhythm guitar player for three days when I was 19 years old. And I didn't really know Buddy that much, so I wasn't that nervous about it. But I found out pretty quick who he was, you know. Yeah. And what did you learn from that experience? From Bu- the three nights with Buddy Guy. Well, one of them was that, uh, you know, you pay attention. You listen. All the little tiny, you know, his all his cues on stage and stuff like that. And uh, and one of the things that I loved about was how uh, Buddy's quite versatile. Mm-hmm. Like he, when it comes to blues, he knows a lot of, you know, what was going on, especially during his time with the Chicago blues, especially, you know, and the electric blues. And so we, we had talks with him, you know, and he would say things about when he would go out to hear bands, you know, or his contemporaries or people that were, you know, he knew Hendrix, he knew all those guys and, so, and of course, Otis Rush, all the West Side guys, you know, and he would, and we were just sort of obsessed with that kind of thing. But he liked us because we did pay attention. We were really good with the traditional sort of um, the Chicago style of blues. We knew the Muddy Waters. I knew it pretty well. And, you know, of course, Buddy was way more electric, you know. Mm-hmm. That was when the Stone Crazy album was out. And if you remember that, yeah, record, yeah, yeah. you know, and... uh Songs like I, you know, Stone Crazy and, and I Smell a Rat and all that stuff. And so, but he was still kind of typical where he'd be playing a song and halfway he'd be like, he'd shut the song down and go into something else, which was a bit of, you know, I've seen him do that and he still yeah. does that sometimes and it's annoying actually. It's like, please finish the song, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we'd be on stage, what is he doing? Is he quitting the song? You know, like, and he'd go into something else, right? And he liked us because we were uh, pretty quick on picking up everything. So what I learned is that you pay a lot of attention. What I learned was that how versatile uh, you can be with blues music because Buddy was very much that way. Right. And I was very happy that I knew as much as I did at the time about some of the music. I didn't know everything. And having talked to him or listening to him, I said, well, what was that? And he goes, oh, that's, you know, you could go listen to this guy or go listen to that guy. He was really good that way, you know. He knew I was a young kid. And I was salivating to get at all this stuff, right? And he was so helpful that way. So that's what I remember. I remember uh, we sat in, backing up. Like John Hammond would do, um, like we'd open. John Hammond would do his acoustic set. Then he'd bring us on. And and he was easy to play with. He's a great great man. Yeah. I'm sure if you've met. met, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And he's just truly will give you the time of day. Mm -hmm. And he truly loves music. And he will talk to you about music all day, yeah. right? So, uh, or listen to you, you know. And when he go, oh, get up and play. So we would just, you know, all of a sudden he was up there blowing harmonica and playing or borrowing the electric and playing that, you know. And so we did that with him. Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee was very interesting because those two <laughs> people did not like each other. They right. really, that wasn't a put on. Like they really messed each other up and they'd yell at each other. But then they would come, finally come together. It took them about a good half an hour, 40 minutes of their show to finally not to try to screw each other up on purpose. They would, <laughs> oh, I mean, like, you know, Brian was there playing in a different key when Sonny was playing his harmonica. It was like, this is horrible, guys, you know? <laughs> but um, they just didn't like each other. But then when they did click, they were amazing. And, you know, so I got to talk to Brownie a lot about stuff. And he would talk to me more about the traditional and the old uh, folk blues, as he called it, you know? How lucky are you just to have that very apprenticeship with very, the, the greats. Very. At the time, I thought I, you know, wow, you're making it. Like this is it. You know, this is a, 
you're getting to hang out with some of these people or see these people that they were all to me they were all the biggest stars in the world you know it was the same thing when I met Dutch Mason you I was going to ask about that because uh, you know I want to say that a number of years ago at the Ottawa Blues Festival you got me into backstage to interview Dutch to interview yeah, uh, to interview is, Dutch. Yeah, that's when I put him, put it all back together for him. I I put all that yeah. that whole thing together. We were trying to film a documentary that has. We still have sixty hours. It's unedited, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot of look at, as I tell the editor, he's like, "What? <laughs> Are you going to do anything with it?" Well, is it, does probably it become very not. complicated. It's complicated with two of the other people that we were involved with. Um. So two of us and. I don't ever want it to get it into any kind of uh, challenge, but uh, I all I wanted, I want, you know, I want to give Garrett Mason all this. Garrett was a 17-year-old kid or something. I can't remember how old right. he was. 17, maybe? He was great then, too, yeah. you know. And, and, you know, I mean, we have so many people that we interviewed on that particular thing i mean that's that's a that's a different story we could talk about that but you know i mean we we've got <laughs> we've got um you know who was there and you were there that that time too was um um ike turner was there right right and we have hey mr turner what do you think of dutch mason and ike turner going who the fuck is dutch mason <laughs> and i'm like perfect God. you know like so it was just it was great, you know. So there's stuff like that is on the, on that film. But anyway, um, well, but I remember. If you ever decide there. to pursue it, let me know. What's that? If you ever decide to pursue, well, I that. do. I do want to get something done. I don't know. Uh, okay, just to sort of give everybody an idea, like Dutch is one of my uh, biggest heroes. Yeah. So so if this, not that I have a huge audience base, but the audience base covers the world. So there are a lot of people who won't know. Dutch okay. Mason. Dutch Mason is uh, single-handedly. I think he almost started a Canadian blues scene. He paved a very good road for the rest of us right. from Nova Scotia, uh, Lunenburg. His real name is Norman, but anybody that uh, came from Lunenburg were from Dutch descent, apparently. So that's why he got the name Dutch. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the story behind the Dutch Mason thing, Lunenburg, and uh, so. Um, Dutchie put out records on London Records at the beginning, and he was a big deal. He was drawing. He had. He always had great bands. Yeah. Dutchie could only play like two or three licks on a guitar, but they were great, and they were always placed perfectly, right? So, of course, back then when I was looking at blues, people say, oh, have you heard Dutch Mason? He's Canadian. I'm like, well, it can't be any good. But it, I was wrong. He was amazingly good. And he, um, you know, he was somebody that um, I would listen to all the time. And he, you could go and see him because he was always touring. And he was very actually instrumental in, 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 in a couple of things with me. A, the fact that here it is that's being done. This right. guy's touring. This guy had a record deal. And wherever he went, it was lineups to get in, and he was sold out. He was playing those places like the, the Misty Moon in Halifax and, and the Palace, which are massive rooms that would hold two to 3,000 people, and he'd do a week at the palace, and he'd sell it out every night. Those were the days, man. You know, right. you could, People would go out and, and listen to stuff. And and so anyways, Dutchie always had great bands, and one time we got to open up for him, and I met Dutchie, and to me, you know, they were like, you know, 
They could have been the Rolling Stones. These guys were rock stars to me. Rock stars. They were like, yeah. wow. You know, because I had their records. And they were Canadian. So that was a big deal, right? And so, and I used to always think, one day I'll just get good enough and I'll hitchhike to Halifax and sit in with one song with Dutchie and I'll be happy forever and ever. <laughs> well, it turned out that Dutchie uh, really liked my playing. I met him many times and he would recommend me. And then when Dutchie ended up um, uh, having gout and arthritis, he couldn't play guitar anymore. And uh, he would hire, every time he came through the Quebec, like Montreal to Ontario side, he would hire me to play guitar. Wow. So I was his guitar player for on and off for years, actually. And I recorded one record with him as well, so on Stony Plain. So that's, Dutchie, though, would say to me, are you playing? I go, yeah. He goes, like, you getting gigs? And I'm like, yes. He goes, well, then you're successful. Right. That's what he'd say to me. And it's true, you know. Do what you want to do, you know. You know. So... Around that time, you established your own career or your own band, and you also wound up in Europe a number of times. How did that happen? Um, I had a, I had a, was just, he's become an agent. Um, he, this was fan. He was a fan, and he would come and see me play all the time. And uh, he just loved what I did. And I was playing around Ottawa, and I'd been playing across Canada at that point, and... Uh, I ended up, I remember, coming to Toronto and had a band here, you know, and then I ended up going back to Ottawa, and then I went out west, and I met Susie Vinnick, mm-hmm. and her and I started a band together. Actually, Susie and I still play together. We just did a, a tour together this uh, last winter, and we're about to do an, another one again, a very short one this uh, this winter uh, as well. We really like playing together, and uh, so we had a band there, and I put out my first record, but... And I was getting a bit of airplay because, you know, you could hustle, man. You could go to the uh, radio station, play my record. And they would. They would play your record. You know, everybody, even commercial radio stations, play your record, you know. And uh, terrific. And so that's how we would send this stuff out. You know, it cost us a fortune. I remember, like, stamps. Who thinks stamps would cost you a fortune? But they would after a while, right? Right. So, and... uh, so then Susie and I sort of parted ways and I started doing this whole Tony D thing on my own, mostly. And I'm really, I'm kind of fast forwarding here, but, uh, and playing and playing. I'd done the thing with Dutch and I still occasionally would play with Dutch. And did you did you have a goal what, what that Tony D thing would, would be? Or did you have a an idea where you want to take that? Well, I did in one way is that I kept playing in bands where everything was sort of on an equal level about what the way the band musically and business would go. But I got to tell you, that's a tough thing to do. And it's very hard because you don't get things done. Right. You know, Monkey Junk is actually quite unique. We're really good at all sort of good 95% of the time. We're all in the same direction where back then people get into arguments, you know, musically or, um, you know, so, about the business. Is, so I just said, forget that. I'm just going to do my own thing. Okay. Yeah. So you became the band leader. Yeah. How, it was going to be just, you know, again, I was young. It was about me, you know. And <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan had come out. We had opened up for Stevie Ray Vaughan in 1984. 
uh, a band called Saints and Sinners, where Big Ben Richardson, who's a bass player for the Phantoms here, right. and uh, he's now playing with Big Sugar, actually. He took over Gary Lowe's role since Gary passed away. Um, he was in that band with me, and uh, Tortoise Blue, who lives in, um, who doesn't play anymore, but he lives in Toronto. And um, we opened up for Stevie Ray Vaughan, and Stevie really changed my life because I saw this incredible power house of just energy of this guy that would command the stage on playing guitar as much as he did. Uh, some people didn't like it. Some people loved it. I was one of the people that was fortunate to love it. And because I was always um, uh, insecure about my singing, the the idea of a guy playing a lot of guitar solos really appealed to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm being honest, you yeah, know, yeah. this is the way it is. Okay, so... And so that was sort of the way I would kind of base the Tony D idea was after opening for Stevie. And, and, you know, I used to cover some Stevie stuff, but he taught me how to play guitar too in a lot of ways, you know, like I would pick up a lot of great stuff. Sometimes I listen to it now, like it'll come on or something. I don't, I'm not like, I don't listen to it as much anymore, but I go, that's Stevie, man. Like he was one of the best. Oh yeah. He like truly was one of the best. Unfortunately, I think, I think all the people who imitated him kind of, yeah, I'm guilty of that too. I imitated him like crazy. Yeah, you know, but I mean, I think that kind of de- not devalued, but I think that yeah, it did though. Yeah. But I think you're right. It it, it not devalued in the sense of what Stevie was actually doing. It was just that everybody was trying to be this yeah. guy and not be themselves. I was one of those people guilty of that, you know. And then you walk away, and then you yeah. you go back to it, and you think, oh yeah. my god, he's amazing. Yeah. It's funny because last week, um, I spoke to David Gogo. Yes. And he told me about how yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan taught him yes. and changed his life. He knew him really well. Yeah. He had met him a few times. and I mean, he's, he's got the belt. The Stevie gave him a little belt and all this stuff. But, you know, David, what's interesting about David Gogo, that he's heavily influenced by Stevie, but he doesn't sound like Stevie. No. He never did. Where I was a little bit more, like my early records, you could just really hear the Stevie Ray Vaughan. But I stopped doing covering his songs. I might have covered one or two, but... You know, but if you ask me to play any of his songs, I'm still, I'm still able to play it because I still, you know, it, it, he was very, um, he, you know, he was very important in bringing a lot of that back and on yeah, a commercial sure. level too because mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you had, you know, here's a guy that, you know, Pride and Joy hit commercial radio in 1983. Straight 12 bar blues, three guys, you know, from all that disco era and then all the synthesizer era, here comes this raw sound. That's, that was another thing about Stevie, was that the soul was put back into it. And it's like a bunch of guys actually playing music. Yeah. And was a, a really interesting um, time and very exciting. And, and you remember, that was this sort of resurgence of this just this huge blues movement again, a new movement. And all of a sudden, because people like Stevie Ray Vaughan, we heard about Lonnie Mack, who I'd never heard of, you know, or he would go and and talk about all these other people, you know. And Albert Collins got bigger, you know. Even though we knew, I knew Albert Collins was, but a lot of people didn't. But Stevie Ray would talk about him, you know. Or just Johnny Copeland, all those guys and uh, that I'd never heard of. Uh, but there he was, and that guy. And the great thing about Stevie that he would talk about them. He wouldn't say, I didn't start any of this. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, Albert King. You know, I mean, if anybody 
push the style of guitar playing, the Albert King style, which, you know, I knew about because I already had Livewire Blues Power, which was, and, and of course, Born Under a Bad Sign, I had those records, were fantastic, you know. But then you think like, oh, wow, listen to Stevie doing Albert. Like, he sounded so much like Albert King, right? But those, those, those you know, he's very important for my generation of young guys that grew up playing mm-hmm. music. Um, just like, you know, Muddy, as important as Muddy was, like, I, I actually have to stress how important Muddy Waters was to me as well. Uh, because when I listen to this stuff, that, that's the deepest kind of blues for me, you know. And I got to meet him at 17 years old and shake his hand. <laughs> and that's one of my favorite memories. I went up to him and said, Mr. Waters, I think you're great. And he went, thank you, son. That's it. <laughs> that was it. Then he turned around and was talking to Coco Taylor. It was at a festival. Right. I, but this was at a club. I, I snuck into this club. I was 17. I mean, I love that I had that kind of, uh, you know, at the time it was just like balls to go into these things. And just, I didn't care. I just had to go meet and see everything. Right. Yeah. Those are, that's very important. So that's the kind of obsession I'm talking about when people are obsessed. You know, I thought, a oh, 50-50 chance I might get thrown out here. And a lot of times I did. It's like, yeah, nice try, kid. Get out. You know, but I still... I, sometimes I got in. So at one point or another, you become maybe not the elder statesman, but you're quite established in, in the Ottawa blues scene and mm-hmm. very, very well respected. And then if I remember correctly, I presume that's still the case that you were a big part of the blues festival there. Yes. And, and the blues scene there. So I've done about, tw- I don't know how many festivals, it's been 23 years, 20? Oh, I don't know. I've done about 21. Wow. I think I missed the first one, and I had to miss one one year because I just wasn't around. I was in Europe or something. <laughs> <laughs> so is it? So tell me about that. So here's this young kid from Ottawa who wants to become a musician and play the blues, and then many years later, yeah. you're part of a big part of the blues scene in Ottawa. Yeah. Well, th- this is the thing. Like I realized that you had to do some recording, and I realized that you had to put recordings out there. And talking about hustling and going to radio stations, I would do that. And I say, play my record, right. play my record. And I find out who was what, who's where. So when I had this fan that was a really big fan of mine, uh, he went to Europe and he said, oh, you got to come and play Europe. I said, I'd love to, but, you know, because, no, you got to come and play Europe. So one day <clears throat> I decided, you know what, I'm going to go and get a record deal in Europe. Like, I mean, that's just the way I would think. And it's like, <clears throat> I, was, I had a roommate of mine. I said, let's go to Europe. Let's go to Amsterdam, you know. Well, and he could play harmonica pretty well. You had to tell him which harmonica to play, but <laughs> but he could play the blues. He sounded like Sonny Boy Williamson at halftime. So him and I, I said, we don't have a lot of money. You know, I was playing around town. I said, but we'll go over there. I've got this recording. And uh, <clears throat> it was my second recording I put out. It was called Get Yourself Some, and uh, which did incredibly well in Europe after this. So we went over to Europe, and uh, I had a list of record companies in Amsterdam. I don't even know how I got that. There was no internet. There was no right. internet. And, and you get on the phone, it, it costs you money. Oh, you a know? lot of money, yeah. And thousands of dollars, you know, we would spend hundreds of dollars in phone bill and stuff like But I didn't even know where I got those contacts, but I did. And I said, okay, this is the, the record company I would like to be with, but then if that doesn't work, which it won't, I would say, you know, then we'll go down the list. And I really did this, Michael. I went to Amsterdam. I went to the first guy that was that had the best distribution in Europe, and I knew about that. 
uh, all across the Benelux region into England and into France. And, uh, and I went there and I said, uh, I want you to listen to my record. And uh, he said, okay. So I put on the CD and he went, I'll be right back. After about a few songs, he says, I'll be right back. And he came back with a six-pack of Heineken. <laughs> and I'm like, what's he doing? And he says, did you drink beer? I said, yeah. And my friend was with me. My roommate was with me. And he gave him and said, he goes, okay, I'll take the record. Wow. He says, he says I license it. I'll give you this much. It's like, he said, I'm going to give you 4,000 US. I remember that. And it was like that to me. That was like, bang, wow. Did you have any idea what you would be negotiating? Like with 4,000 in the territory? Is that way more, way less? Now? No, no. At that point, when he's offered it to you, did you have any idea what you wanted to get from him? <laughs> I didn't even know how we were going to do it. I just wanted him to grab the record and right. distribute it. I just thought if he distributed it, I'll be fine. And that's exactly what happened. He gave, the, it, but he, owned, he says, I own the rights for five years. He says, I can send any song out to anywhere else. I said, yeah, yeah, man, great. You know, and so, and it was Tramp Records. And Tramp Records had uh, quite a few different artists on there. Um, but he had really large distribution, which was a big deal for me. Um, and so he um, took the record on and he started playing it and promoting it. And it took me a good year and a half to try to get tours happening after that. But I knew that I was being played. And so this guy... But so you're trying to get this happening or are you trying to find an agent in Europe to get No, it? but what, I'm trying to get this happening and, and it's hard to find an agent. But remember, now we go back to this guy that was a fan that had moved to Europe and said, right. you should come and play in Europe. I, he said, you got a record here. I know, I hear it. It's being played, you know? And so what um, happened, he was based out of England and he started. He started going out to see all these other blues bands. He says, listen, listen to this guy. I want to get this guy here. How am I going to get this guy? And then he met Otis Grant. You remember Otis? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Otis is <laughs> he's quite the character. But Otis was really helpful about Europe with me. He said, yeah, I really like Tony. Get him over here. This is who you talk to, talk to. And this fan ended up becoming the agent and started, um, and started just promoting me. And I did four tours of Europe. He got me... Uh, like on Guitarist Magazine, full page. He ended up getting us a Fender sponsorship so that we wouldn't have, because renting gear was really expensive. Right. So he went to Fender, said, look, and this guy's in Guitarist Magazine. We need to. We need some amps. So they would just say, oh, yeah, take these amps. They wouldn't give it to us, but they lend it to us for the tour. Wow. Then, you know, put this Fender banner up on stage. Sure, here's a Fender T-shirt. Great. Need strings? Yes. You know, stuff like that. So, and the guy says, oh, we'll go over to the other part of the warehouse. That's where the drums are. So we could get drums too, right? And one of the things that was fantastic for me about that whole time about going to Europe was that, um, remember going back to Dutch Mason? Those guys were rock stars to me. Yeah. Well, the bass player, a guy named uh, Greg Fish Fancy was Dutchie's bass player on all those great records that Dutchie put out. And to me, again, this guy was like a rock star. Every time I met him, I'm like, oh, hi, fish, you know. Like, And he found out I had a bass player, and the bass player cancels on me on my first, but I, I got to go to Europe. And he's like, I can't come. This is my bass player back home in Ottawa. I'm like, what are you talking about? It took me years to get this happening. So I'm like freaking out. And my, I had an agent in, in Halifax, uh, one of my best friends named Mike Shepard, who was really 
monumental on getting me to play the East Coast. He passed away two years ago. He's one of a dear friend, actually. Was one best agent. Um, and so people would know, a lot of musicians knew who Mike Shepard was. And he was also responsible for all Dutchies stuff. He used to manage Dutch. But um, I'm talking to, you know, Mike on the phone. I said, yeah, I mean, my bass player is like, I got to find another guy to come to Europe and all this stuff. Fish happened to be in the office, Greg Fish Fancy, who played for Dutchie. And he called me back 15 minutes ago. He goes, you're looking for a bass player to go to Europe? I'm like, uh, yeah. Yeah, because remember this guy to me, he's like, well, and he's like, uh, yeah, yeah. He goes, I'll do it. And I go, what? I was stunned that he would do it. Because <laughs> again, to me, he's a star. Yeah. He goes, I said, I, I can't pay you a lot. Because it wasn't a lot of money. He goes, I've never been to Europe. I'd love to go see Europe. And he became my bass player after all. And I was just over the moon. That was another thing about going to Europe, that I had Fish Fancy as my bass player. Yeah. And he was the same guy I got. Uh, he was on that. Uh, when we, you know, that the reunion tour, yeah, that we yeah. got at, that you were at. He was a gray-haired guy playing bass, and he was become one of my best friends, actually. And him and I toured Europe four or five times together, you know. So that was the thing, and so, but, okay. So I'm doing this a lot. I'm getting all this press, uh, doing can Canadian tours. So we were a thing in Ottawa. We were drawing heavily, and so the Blues Festival, when it happened, we were part of it. And then I ended up, becoming, you know, a host of the acoustic stage, for example, or putting together these reunions for people like Dutch or putting together other things. I would go and travel. We, we brought Otis Grand over. We brought Andy J. Forrest from New Orleans, who I'd met in Belgium, you know. Uh, Johnny Sansone we had met we had, uh, from New Orleans. And just all these guys, either we, we usually would meet them in some places in the States, not so much, but mostly in Europe because they were on the same festivals. And so... We were part of bringing those guys up to the Ottawa Blues Fest because Ottawa Blues Fest was becoming very um, popular. It's, you know, it's a different festival now than, than when it first started. Yeah. It's, a, it's a massive rock festival, music festival. But people say there's not enough blues in it. Well, I beg to differ. If There is a lot of blues. Yeah. There's back quite a bit. But it's just that it, there's no big names anymore. Well, but it, it's, it's been running... How many years and successfully, and it keeps drawing more people. Yeah, and I mean they're solvent. You know, they they make money. They make yeah. serious money, and they bring in all some very cool acts. You know, I mean, you know, their headliner is Lady Gaga. You know, yeah. or Kiss, or you know, or KC. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, and they had Tom Petty the year that he, Tom Petty passed away, and they finally got BB King one year. You know, but then they'll have they'll have Skrillex. You know, <laughs> who does all that. Um, you know, um, dance music, electronic dance music, where all the kids come in. I mean, Mark Monaghan, who runs a festival, is a very, uh, he's very good at what he does. Mm -hmm, he, sure. he says, hey, you want to keep a festival going? You want to hear a lot of blues? Yeah, I still have a lot of blues in my festival. And he does. You can pick out, like, easily 30 acts, 40 acts that are under the blues umbrella if you wanted to. For sure. You know? Because yeah. blue, blues has to expand, you know? And, and in some ways, they are. You know, you get... You get bands like I mean Lark and Poe is sort of started like the, those two those two young sisters that are they're pretty good mm -hmm. they they do blue stuff but they also do a lot of heavy rock stuff so but still you, yeah, it fits you know um, I, I got I, to see Gary Clark Jr. which I thought was one of the best shows I've seen in the last couple of years that guy is great he comes out this you know and he just starts playing blues I mean he just starts playing and that's it and it's two hours of great 
music, you know. And I really like, I think those people like that are, are pushing the genre uh, or, or keeping it going or pushing it forward. And Blues Fest, even though, like I said, Lady Gaga is your headliner, but you still have Gary Clark Jr. on another mm-hmm. stage and, you know, and we're still part of it every year. We either host, uh, we do these jams where we, we used to do a thing called the Power Hour where we used to bring in people up and jams or we back up other people. We do our own shows. It's all that. And we'll play like four or five days of the festival, you know. So I need to get to mon- Monkey Junk. Tell yes. me, because we met last, well, maybe not last, maybe last time, we talked about the um, the IBC and, and the, the formation of Monkey Junk and success of Monkey Junk at the IBC. So it's been a while. But it's tell ten, me. Yes. Yeah. So, but that, I remember interviewing you about that. But tell me about Monkey Junk. So you had mentioned like two years before Monkey Junk, you were kind of searching. Yeah, and sort of thinking, floating around, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you seeked out other kind of music, but mm-hmm. you wind up wind, oh, you wind up playing with Matt and Steve and, and creating. Steve. Well, Matt was playing with me in the Tony D band. Right, right. Steve I've known since he was thirteen years old. And Steve used to come to jams, you know, and uh, get up and play the same three songs over and over again. I always I used to run a jam, and he used to come in every week. His dad would bring him, you know. <laughs> but Steve was always good. Mm-hmm. Steve could play like Sonny Boy and Little Walter at the age of thirteen, you know. Like he was just. He was, he was one of those guys. He was obsessed, right? Obsessed with music. Still is. Right. It's wonderful. And Matt was one of those guys who were obsessed with music, too. Um, you know, they got some great individual stories uh, about how they got to where they at. You know, Matt kind of fell into it by accident because his brother had a band and the drummer that they had was okay. Matt didn't even know how to play drums. He said, well, I can, and he didn't show up for a practice. So Matt shows up and starts playing. Apparently Matt could play drums, you know? So that's, but that's, that's his story. I hope you get to talk to him yeah, one day. For but, sure. So what happened with Monkey Junk was that Steve Mariner, Matt Saab and myself were, we've known each other. We all played in different bands with one another. And I, had I wasn't touring as much. I was teaching, which was a really good thing for me to do as well. I started uh, becoming an instructor at the Ottawa Folklore Center, which had been around for 40 years. Uh, great school. Mm-hmm. We all went there for lessons at one point, and, uh, which got me into different kind of stuff as well. But, um, so I was still making a living and playing music. But, so Steve had put out a record, and he was a very young man, and he... He needed a guitar player. He says, hey, would you play with me? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So we did a couple of festivals. And Steve had this um, show on, every Sunday he would play at a, at a pub called Irene's in downtown, in the Glebe in Ottawa, which is a downtown area of Ottawa. And it was just himself with a guitar and a harmonica. And sometimes he had a bass drum, you know. And I would see him, I thought, he's really good, you know, like this solo act. And so then I started playing the band thing with him. And he said, hey, listen, would you, would you come down and, and, and play with me at Irene's? You know, I kind of get lonely up there. And I'm like, yeah. And him and he came over to my place and we started listening to, you know, all the stuff that we both liked. And we both liked, of course, the same stuff, like Little Walter. And, and I, was, I was saying, hey, have you ever listened to like, um, you know, Hound Dog Taylor and stuff like that? There's no bass player, you know? There's like two guitars and drums. And he's like... Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. I thought, wouldn't it be great? You know, I love to do this, you know, where you're just two guys are just riding like, you know, that low end on the guitar to try to keep, you know, because there's no bass, but getting that delta kind of thing, but really electrifying it, right. you know? And uh, he said, yeah. 
So we called Matt, said, hey, show up at Irene's. We're going to try this thing. We were just messing around. I do a blues song, Steve do a blues song, Matt just play along, a little tiny kit, you know, in a corner. Well, before you know it, there's a lineup to come and see us. Did you Sundays. know? And Very we just quickly. got good. And we rearranged some really cool stuff, though, you know. But did you know quickly that there was something different about yeah, this? Yeah, because we were all really looking forward to every Sunday, right? Every, all three of us was like, hey, I got an idea for a song like this. If we did this, like, you know, Steve had arranged a tiger in your tank the way we play it, right. uh, which you know, Muddy Waters did that song. I think the original was, was written by, uh, well, I think Willie Dixon might have written I, I can't, but Muddy did it. Right. Gonna put a tiger in your tank. But the way we do it, we kind of like swamped it up and rocked it up a bit, right? So all of our influences started coming in. And so we thought, well, there's something here. We took the song Boogeyman, which was written by um, Leon Russell, and we took... Uh, Kind of like Freddie King's version, but then we redid it completely and really put a heavy beat to it. So we thought, okay, let's go to the studio. And we cut three songs and we were like, sounds good. Then we entered uh, the IBC's, International Blues Competition. We came third out of 100 bands. But what happened was that we got the attention of a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. uh, record companies, small ones. And we did. We ended up signing with a small uh, label called um, Vistone. Vistone used to be something else, I think, because... Um, Tone Cool. Yes, right? with, yeah. and Susan Tedeschi was yeah. on that. Yeah. With, uh, you, you must know Rosie, and, uh, yeah. you know, he was, um, he was the guy that runs it. I still think he runs it. Anyways, they were playing the heck out of our, uh, our song, our album, you know, A Tiger in Your Tank, and... Uh, we ended up the year, a couple of years later, or the year later, I can't remember, we ended up winning a, a, you know, a Blues Music Award, which was the Handies. Right. Which was probably unheard of that somebody would... Two Canadians at the time. Right. Jeff Healy had won. Uh, posthumously, he had, he had passed away, but they, his record had won, and us. Yeah. There was other Canadians that had been nominated, because I remember, I think, that Paul Reddick and the Sidemen were right. nominated. And I think there was a band called, the um, uh, guys from out west... Uh, Powder Blues, I think, might have... Uh, no, it was, um, not, I'm thinking of somebody else, but anyway, they were actually nominated, uh, but they had never won. Right. And we end up winning. And you know, the great thing about that, I remember being a kid, <laughs> younger and a kid and I remember reading these blues magazines and seeing all these guys. And I remember Stevie Ray Vaughan coming out of the Handy Awards with a whole bunch of, and I thought, well, that's great. I'll never win one of those. You got to be American. <laughs> and I remember as they called out our name and I'm walking up the stage to accept the award the whole band all i could remember was that reading those articles and seeing these pictures of these guys and thinking i'll never get one of these and like well what do you know wow and it was to me that was a big moment that was a good moment so just uh, because of the acceptance of being on that level right that was yeah. yeah well that's huge yeah and also the fact that i'm not sure how many other people have have won um a placing in the ibc in the next year won something from the Blues Music Awards, the Handy Awards, like that. Yeah, the next year. Yeah, I mean, we can never win, go into the IBC again because once you win a Handy, yeah, yeah. The, the Blues Music Award. Um, I still love calling it the Handies because to me, there's you know, yeah. there's something about that. But it was, it was, I, that was a big thing for us. But at that point, we already were full on. We were monkey junk, and we were, we had a lot of vision. And after that, um, people like Holger Peterson said, would you consider being on our label? <laughs> what? I grew up buying everything you put out, Holger. 
can't believe I would be on the same label. It was a massive uh, thing for us, and it really did push us. Okay, so I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about the IBCs and and how a lot of people win, and then you hear about them for the next year, but they kind of fade. Mm-hmm. Not not everybody, but mm-hmm. you know certain people. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to sustain popularity. I I get the impression that Monkey Junk has been able to sustain and grow that popular that yeah popularity. There's a, there's a few reasons. We always said it did done things a bit differently. Like we would re- if we would cover a song, for example, we would totally rearrange it. If you listen to Tiger in Your Tank, that song from right. the album doesn't sound anything like the original. Some people think we wrote the song. Of course, we didn't, right. but musically, we completely rearranged it. It was a big deal. And we had all this other stuff that you know I had written and, and Steve had written, and we brought it, and we would bring in all our um, influences at once, you know, and the fact we didn't have a bass player. And so we had to think, purposely didn't have a bass player, because we admired, like, the little Walter without the bass, and we admired Hound Dog Taylor, you know, and... Uh, so we wanted to do this thing this way. So Steve started saying, ah, we still need a bit of a bottom end. So he started playing a baritone guitar. Mm-hmm. But then what, what Steve would do would process it with a, like a slow tremolo that's on there. This is very much a big part of the monkey junk sound is what Steve's baritone with this slow tremolo that's on all the time. Right. It gives it a really kind of uh, groovy and, uh, you know, uh, Sort of, it just, it's just a sound. And then, of course, I would layer all my stuff on it. And then Matt really does a lot of different beats. You know, I mean, there's shuffles once in a while in the blues, but not hardly any, you know. But then we wrote all our own material, which is very important mm-hmm. to write as much material as you can. Now, some of that has completely gone away from the, from the blues genre. You can still hear it in the playing. Right. But, like, I mean, we have a song on our fourth album, uh, titled Moon Tune Red. The, the song is actually titled um, Live Another Day. Well, it might as well be Uriah Heep, you know, <laughs> some progressive rock band, <laughs> because that's what it sounds like. So the, the, do you, are you concerned then? Do you think... We were, but not now. Mm-mm. I think it's just really what makes us... You know, some people don't like it. And some people think, that's the best thing I ever heard you do. Because it's just different. Right. A lot of people can argue, you guys aren't really a blues band anymore. And we go like, it's an argument uh, because there's so much stuff. But then some people think like, you're really evolving the blues. But the last record we did, which one did you know? The Time to Roll, our fifth record. There's a lot more blues on it than there has been in the last couple. You know, and um, we always used to think like we're putting out this al- an album. You know, we think, oh, I don't know if Holger's going to dig this, you know. Stony Plank, it's not blues, not eh, he still put it out there and he still liked it. So, how much say does he have in the album that you put together? How much say do we have? Does he have uh, uh Holger? Yeah. Holger never ever uh interferes with the artistic product. He did say to us the only time he said, You know how you guys kind of like rearrange blues songs once in a while and it's really groovy because we did like Tiger in Your Tank yeah. and in our third. Our third record, we have a song called um, Why Are People Like That? Or Why Do People Act Like That? Which another again, Muddy Waters. Right. And we did it. It's wild. If you listen to it, it's just this this, this envelope filters on the baritone. It's like wah, wah, wah sound, you know. And I'm playing this like greasy slide over it. And Matt's got this great heavy drum beat. But it's so cool. 
It's so cool. Uh, and Holger loves when we rework stuff like that, right? Remember James Harmon, the great harmonica yeah, player? Yeah. We sent it to him because <laughs> Steve plays incredible harp on it. Steve was like, I'm going to send this to James, you know, because we're friends with James. And James goes, I don't know what the hell that is, but I love you anyway. <laughs> like, and it's true because it just doesn't sound anything like the original. So Holger did ask for the last one, could you guys do a blues song like that well we did and we really didn't rearrange it that much we weren't really into doing that but we did it anyway and it's okay it's the hunter the albert king song steve really likes that song i'm thinking should we do the hunter you know it's kind of covered for me it's not one of the stronger tracks on the record it's still fine right and holger was okay that's great because he likes to be able to talk about a traditional uh, not a tradition, but, but but a blues connection all the time, right? Because he knows we're going to just write whatever now. So, like, it's unusual, especially for a Canadian band, to have, I think, what I envision to be a level of success that you guys have had mm-hmm. and the fact that you're touring all over the world. Mm-hmm. How has Monkey Junk changed your life? Oh, for me, it's, a, it's like it's a new life, you know? It was, it was a new Like, I've had many different musical careers, you know, flamenco, when yeah. I was doing that, I was being one of them, doing my own thing, and, uh, you know, playing in a wedding band. But all of a sudden, I'm playing in this band called Monkey Junk, when, you know, you have to give credit to the youth and strength of people like Steve Mariner and a musical vision that he he could see it, and, you know, him and I together, uh, and and then Matt coming in and really realizing that hey this is different and sound wise so he's going to do different things right. and so now all of a sudden sounds three sounds come together that are purposely trying to to seek something different so how does that affect me musically artistically it's been one of the best ever for me because we're really open now right because we've tried some you know you listen to the record there's some pretty Things yeah. that are out there, and then some things that are, you know, drawn back into our blues. But I can come in and go, hey, look, this is kind of weird. I got this thing. Or Steve say, oh, I got this thing. Or Matt goes, listen, you know, the, he'll start doing this groovy beat, and then we start writing over it. So musically, it's fantastic. Um, How does that change the Tony D band? Is it, it, oh, what What is the Tony D the band? The Tony now? D band still exists. I still right. do Tony D shows. Uh, and it, it, I realized something though. It's really interesting. How does it change? It's like, how would somebody from a band that has a very specific sound and taking it to another project where the, you would hear that sound? And yes is the answer. <laughs> I realize there is quite a bit of my own personal influence in Monkey Junk that carries over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different from the early Tony D, but now it's, uh, you know, how the sounds, certain sounds, especially my guitar or or how I approach it. In fact, I even cover uh, a, a Monkey Junk song <laughs> uh, that we wrote, a Monkey Junk Road, and I do it with the Tony D band. And I do it a bit different, you know, because that's the interesting part. When you go back to do something with your own project, you can do whatever you want to, and you think, yeah, it should have always been this way. <laughs> but, you know, um, so it, it you can hear the sound. And I think when I hear Steve do anything on his own sometimes, you could hear where the, the Steve Mariner sound of Monkey Junk definitely is just really quite prominent now. Mm-hmm. Like how he looks at or hears certain songs and how they should be in his mind. You know, when you're dealing with a bunch of guys, with, uh, when you're working with other people, you're going to have to put up with the fact that everybody's got a different approach. But ours works. 
So it yeah. wasn't a big adjustment when, when you decided to start your own band and become the leader to going back into a band formation. Was that a big adjustment in terms of... Well, it was a big adjustment in some things. The idea of doing like what I did before Monkey Junk, which was, you know, trios and, and sometimes full-on five-piece bands, still a lot of long guitar solos, that doesn't happen too much anymore. Mm. Uh, you, you know, you get... I've become a better musician with Monkey Junk because I've opened up and I've been able to use all my influences, so which made me a better musician. So I play better. <laughs> so, so, and I say that I, honestly, just because of the how much stuff I've had to do with Monkey Junk and be different. So that is definitely part of the new. Tony and how do you, how do you get better? How does Tony D become a better guitar player? I, um, because our the way we approach the music, there's much more of an original creative element than I've had in just being a straight ahead blues band or so or just you know right. uh, covering other people's songs obviously I you know I gotta say though every time I did cover anybody else's song it doesn't end up sounding like the original it never did right. all it was was I was using the lyrics because you know lyrics are tough to write a good set of lyrics are tough to write I've heard some people's lyrics you know and in new blues songs and and with all due respect, that it's really hard. It's not. It's not. Nothing new. Yeah. You can hear what the next line is going to be. So for us to try to write lyrics, that's where we sometimes struggle as a band, Monkey Junk. But we've gotten better and better. And we've we've had people like Paul Reddick come in who writes really. Lyrics. You know, Paul can paint a beautiful image in front of you. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he has some of the best songs as far as contemporary blues music. Like when he has that, that song photograph, that's of Paul, it's a great song, mm -hmm. you know, um, about a guy, he's only got one photograph, you know, and, uh, and he's going to give it to this girl. It's the only one I have, you know, but it's great. You know, the idea of like the imagery, I can just see it's an old blues guy with one photograph. Because, right. and so Paul writes these great songs with lyrically, and he's really helped us. And so lyrically, we've gotten better. We don't sound like a typical blues lyric. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, with some of the, a lot of the albums now, everything sounds kind of the lyrically. You know, like, listen to like, when you listen to like Muddy, uh, Robert Johnson singing beautiful lines like she's got a mortgage in my body and a lean on my soul that's i mean that's wow that's amazing yeah. nobody's writing that that kind of imagery anymore mm -hmm. in blues and it's hard it's hard to write a a good lyrical blues song so is there more pressure on you personally because of the fact that monkey junk has done so well or do you feel that kind of pressure at all no no i think it's also helped me um a keep a foothold or elevated my profile i get a lot of people that come to the monkey junk show says hey man i used to see you at the tony d van at here and over there or and some people will you know it's amazing i go over to europe with monkey junk and uh, and i've seen other musicians go hey man see you with your own band at this festival in belgium and i'm like wow wow you know yeah so that still happens so it, it helps me and um it, you know, Mon Monkey Junk's won a couple of Junos, and that really helps to get people's attention. It still does. It, it really does help. 
it's not about awards or anything like that. But I got to tell you, it makes people pay attention. Mm-hmm. So it's and 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 again, when you have the vision and the youth of people like Steve Mariner and the drive, and uh, and we all have the same drive. And Matt saw too. Matt has has. Um, taken on the responsibility of doing a lot of the finances for the band. And, you know, we've really brought it to a level of business that's that's different from a lot of other bands. Like, you know, the money's mm-hmm. getting there, and the money still gets there sometimes. And so we do different things with it. And um, we've, we've looked at every avenue. Like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, like in Canada, one of the great things about Canada is that you can go out there and get grants to mm-hmm. do things, right? Um, our record company does it. We all get touring grants, that kind of thing. And we make really good money to playing. Um, this is sort of the new approach now, you know. Bands have to be a little bit more savvy. You know, blues bands are like, I don't know, you know, is there beer included in the in the, in this gig? You know, stuff right, like right, that. Yeah. It's like, okay, those days, you know, guys, if you really want to go out there and do something, you got to get a little bit savvy about business. And that's things like that where Matt or drummer has been really great with that, you know. Um, oh, but but I, I do think that that also comes with the success that you have had. You know what course. I mean? Like, it's, like you can be business savvy and make demands, but, but if you don't see, have the substance. You, you basically, you know, I mean, you're right. If you have success, it makes you able to get more. Yeah. I mean, it's great to see this. And, and yeah. I've known you. I think I might have interviewed you first time in 2003 or something. But I've known you for a while. And it's Ooh, nice to see. A long time now. Yeah. Well, you did one of the early. You did Monkey Junk early with the Talking yeah, Blues. That, yeah. I, that's still yeah. out there. You can still see it. Yeah, I still see it. You know, once in a while, you know, it's on. It's on YouTube. But I even think. before that, like, with the Tony yeah. D band, the Tony I mean, D band, yeah. you've interviewed me there, and yeah. and you've come. You know, we've we've done a few things. So, I think that, you know, that that sort of business success that if you want to do this, it, it, you know, people say, well, how is it? Where's the longevity come from? Well, if you really, really want to do this, you gotta have ideas and you have to figure out how you're going to do this and and the business end of it you have to understand it's like look in the early days like when i decided i was going to go to europe and get a record deal i just basically got up and went to europe and get a record deal you have to do things like that yeah. you have to get up and, and you have to realize okay where's the distribution you have to try to figure this out what surprises me about tony d back then doing that was like how did i find out this information because now it's just like uh you know, we have this magical oracle we can just ask a question to, and it gives you all the, you know, hey, you know, distribution for blues in Europe. That's, you know, yeah. Google, and all of a sudden it gives you a list of, how did I find that out? I, I can't remember how I found out, but I did. And that's, and a lot of other people did too. It wasn't just yeah, me, yeah. you know, there was other people. But I was one of the first ones to go there because, you know, I mean, Downchild had never been to Europe at the time, and, uh, I think the Phantoms had gone in the 80s and, uh, you know, so again, there's like, hey, you can go to Europe, you know, kind of thing. And um, Dutch had never been to Europe. Right. People like him, you know, they've never made it to Europe. I don't think Powder Blues ever did. I'm not sure if they did or not, but, uh, you know, so it was just like, uh, so that kind of idea is still, with Monkey Junk, we've always had that idea. Like, you know, like I remember when the band started really moving, the idea, okay, we're going to go to Europe. Like, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a matter of like, well, we'd like to go to Europe. It's like, okay, when? Right. Because now all that stuff was available to bands. And it was, and and again, the attention of other people. And you do these conferences. And, and, and it's gotten better too. Like, you know, you take 
all these blues festivals, they're inviting other people to come in mm-hmm. from other festivals who get to see you. Um, you know, Ottawa Blues Fest did that a lot. Would invite a lot of writers from somewhere else or other blues, pe- other blues festival people, just other festival people. And they would discover us. Um, Mont Tremblant did that, especially with the French uh, connection in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of these bands, like the Paul Delorier Band or Don Tyler Watson, ourselves included, went over to France because of, you know, Brian Slack over there hooking up with promoters and stuff like that because genuinely wanted to see us go and do things like that. So it's not just us now. There's a lot of, you know, it's, it's everybody and there's a lot of bands that are go out there and can be very successful. And when you see bands like the Paul Delorier band, for example, they work incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. They're at it all the time. So it's kind of like that. You have to be that way. Well, and it's possible. It is possible, but it's also great to see that you know you mm-hmm. just that in the time that I've known you, you, just keep elevating and getting better and better and bigger, and and to see a certain level of success. Well, thank Congratulations you. to well, that. Well, thank you, Michael. And, uh, and, and but you know, there's. Uh, um, you can go out there and do all this stuff. If, if you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, well, do you have advice for anybody starting?" Just to get being credit, you got to work hard. It, it was never really different, even when yeah. 25, 30 years ago. You just got to work hard. But you know, yeah. in, but in, people in, like you have always like put it out there. You got you had an interest always. You know, you had your uh, talking blues show on on on, on various channels uh, yeah, actually, yeah. right? And but that was great. We would all watch it. Everybody knew. And it's like, oh, so and so, you would interview so and so. We we got to know, but but those things help, you know. Yeah. And doing a podcast helps. Um, anybody that wants to promote any kind of art or music, there's a lot of media out there. Yeah, but know. it's it's interesting because this is probably the first time I've actually sat down with you for a long period of time mm-hmm. to go through your career mm-hmm. and and the. The ups and downs and the things that, you know, even the bass player quitting before going to Europe yeah. <laughs> and then finding somebody else. I mean, yeah. things happen to you and you seem to have always overcome it. And mm-hmm. and I've also been very fortunate. Yeah. like it's, I, I am very grateful that this life is still moving along. You know, again, remember I said I was, conf- it's a conflict, you know, these two tensions. Sometimes you think like, yeah, this drive to go do it. And then sometimes you think like, oh, how long am I going to get away with this, you know, until finally... We're this doom, like where it's not supposed to happen. I just, am I this lucky, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I am, there is some luck involved. But if you look back and you look at it, you could interview many musicians who are successful one way or another, and you realize that all of them work pretty hard to, to mm-hmm. be where they are. Yeah. You know, any of the guys are still around, you know. Downchild Blues Band in Canada still works their ass off, you know. They're still at it. And they still draw a lot. Yeah. And uh, and and talk about a you know Donnie Walsh has gone through every change possible in that you know he's lost people people have died and you know yeah. great singers and his wife Jane Vassy was a great piano player you know he continued because Donnie really wants just to play the blues that's all he wants to do and he's managed to do that now of course he got successful as well mm-hmm. and he was during a time where you know bang you got in there recorded and you were getting played on the radio. You're a massive star, you know. And then, of course, doesn't hurt when the Blues Brothers decide to record a couple of your songs and make you, you know, sell four million copies of it. (laughs) So, but, you know, you look at Jack the Kaiser. I remember coming to Toronto in the 80s and Jack was into, you know, had the Bobcats and all that stuff. And and Jack, you know, we did a show 
uh, in Omaha, Nebraska this summer, and Jack was on that bill too. And I'm watching Jack from the side stage. I'm thinking, that guy's just such a great musician. Mm-hmm. I, and it just brought me back to when coming to see him play in the 80s and thinking, and that's what I thought when I saw him. I'm like, man, this guy's just such a great musician. Yeah. And Jack still, but you know how hard he works? He works hard at it all the time. Oh, yeah. He's out there all the time. All the time. And these things are really important that these people, that you have to work hard, you know. And sometimes you go, well, you get lost in the shuffle. Well, no, you can become part of the shuffle. You know, you're not going to get lost in it. You, and, 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 yeah. Are you going to be the greatest thing that ever happened? No. Are you going to be pretty good? Yeah. Well, that's what Muddy Wise said that. He goes, yeah, be the best thing in the world, but you got to be pretty good. <laughs> On that note, I yeah. will close off. But thank you so much for doing this. I I really, thank you very much for having me. It's actually, um, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked. It's good. Well, you know, you're on the road, you're busy, you take this yeah. time. I really yeah. appreciate it. So thank you. All right, peace to you. Thank you. 